Welcome to Ship It, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and swag. I'm your host, Gerhard Lazu, and this is the post-KubeCon CloudNativeCon EU 2022 episode. We are talking to Matt Moore, founder and CTO of ChainGuard, about all things Knative and SIGStore. The most important topic, however, is swag, because no one does stickers and t-shirts better than ChainGuard. The other topic is the equivalent of Let's Encrypt for securing software. Speaking of security, we currently protect our static and app origins by putting Fastly in front. One of the benefits is minimal latency for all our users, regardless where they are in the world. Learn more at Fastly.com. This episode is brought to you by Acuity, a new platform that brings fully managed Argo CD and enterprise services to the cloud or on-premise. The platform is a versatile Kubernetes operator for handling cluster deployments, the GitOps way. And I'm here with Kelsey Hightower, angel investor and advisor to Acuity. Kelsey, why are you excited about Argo CD and what's happening here with Acuity? When I think about Argo CD, it represents the transition from traditional CI CD. You know, you have a big server with a built-in workflow engine. And you can only do what that system can do, whether it's Jenkins, whether it's Spinnaker, you name it. Those things are tend to be all-in solutions and they're all predicated on having like their own built-in workflows, UIs and ways of doing things. And then when I think about kind of the Argo CD, that whole open source movement kind of backed by the ideas we saw in the Kubernetes world, which was each of those steps is nothing more than just a step in a workflow. And after 10, 20 years of doing CI/CD, how best to represent those steps? And it turns out this whole container thing is probably the best way to have little snippets of logic sit at each of those steps in the workflow, and then you can kind of exchange them and share them to build any pipeline you want. So the way to look at this is Kubernetes has never had a workflow engine or tool. And so when you think about kind of Argo workflow or Argo CD, which is kind of a specialized workflow, kind of attacking the how do you roll out software problem? That's the way I would think about it. So if you're all in on Kube and you like the Kubernetes ecosystem, then you kind of have a choice of workload types. And I would probably just say it's another workload type you can put in your toolbox. So if you got something that can benefit from a workflow engine and reuse the logic that you already have in containers, it kind of feels like the perfect fit. The perfect fit. All right. Thanks, Kelsey. Well, the next step is to head to acuity.io slash changelog. They are inviting all of our listeners to join the closed beta. Again, acuity.io slash changelog. Links are in the show notes. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for uh, having me on. I have noticed from your Twitter profile that you are in the business of shipping chains. How is that business coming along these days? Well, we're pivoting uh, away from swag. I'm wearing, you know, all my 
chain guard stuff and we've got stickers and stuff too including my face thanks to scott oh, for those. that's an amazing <laughs> one okay do you have one with dan with lots of hair do you have such a sticker that's the one that i want <laughs> actually we have one of just the hair somewhere i think it may be in my closet okay. but yeah there are pictures of it online i think but it's it's basically a halo of hair that you can uh, used to uh, attach to other stickers to sort of mm. danify them. I think Scott even made two sizes of them so you can, you know, have the, the sort of multi-level halo effect. Paul Morian and Dan Pop had uh, sort of a field day with on Twitter, you know, making him have this enormous like lion's mane of, of hair. But yeah, Scott is our sort of swag master mm. and has been refining his art and, you know, it's great. He did it for a few years for Knative related swag and, you know, has carried that over to uh, Chain Guard swag and has just been killing it. So I have to talk to him about like some tips seriously, because he's, as you mentioned, <laughs> really killing it. And uh, I'm somewhat disappointed that you're pivoting from the swag business because I thought <laughs> you're doing really, really well. And you're doing so well that one of the main reasons for me coming in person to this KubeCon is to get some of that swag. I've been waiting years for this. <laughs> so please, please have at least two of each for me because I've, I've like, first thing when I arrive, I come to the chain guard booth and I, I look for the swag. So by the way, where is the chain guard booth? Can you tell me? <laughs> So we don't yet have a booth this KubeCon, unfortunately, oh. but we will, we will be around and I think we'll have a few options swag-wise. I'm not sure we're toting. So last time we both, uh, let's see, Scott, Vile, and I all checked a giant box of t-shirts and then we carried them around all of KubeCon. Mm. I don't think we're bringing huge amounts of shirts across the Atlantic. But um, I think we're going to have a form folks can, you know, submit to, to get swag sent to them, which will make it easier for them to get it where they are as well. And I think we'll have, I think Scott's has all manner of stickers that we will be handing out. There's, you know, the octopus and a bunch of costumes, yeah. probably my face, although there's a few of us. Scott has one of his face and Billy's face too. I think there may be one specific to Valencia, although I'm not sure he's turning it into mm. a sticker. He's definitely got the image. He's always got something cooking, so I'm sure there will be some, some fun swag surprises uh, from him. So I'm really looking forward to putting that link to the form in the show notes. I think people will love it, especially <laughs> since this is coming out the week after the KubeCon. I think they will really appreciate it. We already established that the thing that I'm most looking forward to this KubeCon is the chain guard swag. So that was already established. But I'm wondering, what are you most looking forward to at this KubeCon in EU? That's a great question. So I think there's a few answers to it. I think personally, I think one of the things that I'm most excited about is this is the first KubeCon ever where Knative is going to be in the CNCF. And, you know, as, as you know, Knative is near and dear to me. Um, and so there will be like whole Knative con day zero, whatever it's called now. Um, since there's two days. So I think that's one piece of it. But, you know, I love the sort of hallway track connecting with people. And there was KubeCon in LA, but when that happened, it was still virtually impossible for folks in the EU to travel because of the state the pandemic was in. And so, you know, there's loads of people that we collaborated with in the context of Knative and, and other projects that, you know, I haven't seen in years. And, and mm -hmm. especially the folks that are EU-based, you, you just see them less often, I think, 
So just, you know, reconnecting with the people, since I feel like open source is, is all about the people. What is the first thing that you're going to do when you arrive in Valencia? Have you thought about it? That's a good question. Well, probably check into my Airbnb or wherever I'm staying. <laughs> I think I think I'm staying with uh, Scott and Vila, so it should be a very interesting week. But after that, you know, I'm excited to go back to Spain because I, the food when we were in Barcelona was very good. And mm. I still think about, you know, the paella and the, the pulpo and, and stuff like that that we had that week, which were just great. Probably ate way more rice than I should have that week <laughs> in paella form, but it was fantastic. So looking forward to some of the, the delicious Spanish foods, but starting to connect with people, is, uh, you know, after that. I do have to say that's something which I'm most looking forward to. This is my first KubeCon EU in person. I've never been to KubeCon EU in person. My my <laughs> previous one was obviously virtual. And I think two two KubeCons, two KubeCon EUs ago is also virtual. But that was like a bit like even like even more different because I think it was like the first the first year was like, you know, everything was just being figured out. That was a huge adjustment, 2020. KubeCon North America 2019. That was my first and last in-person KubeCon. So this is a big one for me. Was that San Diego? That was San Diego, yes. It was, yes. That was a good one. I really enjoyed I really enjoyed myself, yeah. So, yeah, really looking forward to that. I know that there are a couple of chain guard talks at this KubeCon, five plus one. Five at KubeCon and one in the RejectConf. Have you seen any of the previews for those talks? I don't think I have, although it's on a lot of topics that are sort of peripherally related. And, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of them are sort of, I think most of them are very sort of open source community focused and co-presenting with other folks. But yeah, I think I think Adrian is during rejects. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'll quite be there yet because I think, you know, landing late Sunday after, you know, if you look at, you know, wall clock time, it seems like it's just this incredibly long thing, <laughs> travel time. But, you know, with the time change and whatnot, it always just seems like a time distortion. But so, yeah, I think I get there late Sunday. So I'll, I'll unfortunately yeah. miss the, the rejects uh, talk. Yeah. And then, you know, there's talks like from, uh, I always call him Puerco, but uh, Adolfo yeah. and Carlos and, and others have talks on things like S-bombs, which I, I love hearing. Perko talk about S bombs because you know he's he's the go to person on S bombs. Certainly a chain guard. If you know, I, I, a lot of folks come to him from the community and elsewhere to talk about them. So mm-hmm. it's always always interesting to get the latest from him because the S bomb space is also sort of an evolving thing. As you know, folks are starting to wrap their heads around it and you know, form best practices around how you do X and how you do Y and how you actually consume those to do other useful things, which really informs, you know, how you <laughs> how you produce it and what information you put in there, I think is, is heavily influenced by what you want to do with it and the use cases there, right? Do you want to yeah. do vulnerability scans or license compliance? Do you need things down to the file level? Or do you want it at the package level or the image level? I mean, there's, there's just so many things. Right. Does it have to be all-encompassing or can it reference other things and so on and so forth? So it's always great to hear him talk about that stuff. So if you had to choose one of the five talks to watch, which one would that be? That's tough. So I'm going to miss Puerco's talk because I'm flying out early Friday. I generally am 
naughty. I like the hallway tracks so much. I often skip most talks because mm-hmm. they're recorded. So that's sort of my non-answer. I don't know that right. I'll actually go. I may go and you know support them, but um, generally, I, I actually don't go to the talks at KubeCon. I, I meet with people and and talk to the people while I'm there. I actually hear that a lot, and I think I think many people do that. You know, and especially since we haven't seen each other in person for years, in this case, I think the hallway track will be the most popular talk at this KubeCon. Uh-huh. I think uh, they may want to move it somehow, like somewhere where there's like lots of room because I see a lot of people joining that talk. I'm really, really keen to see releasing Kubernetes less often because I find that like almost like a controversial point and uh, more securely. I think that's going to be very interesting. But what I would recommend, especially since you're listening to this after KubeCon, is skimming all five talks when they come out and then watch with intent the one that you like the most. That's what I'm going to do. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. They give software teams instant visibility into the quality and the performance of their software. And I'm here with John Daniel Trask, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. JD, talk to me about the joy a team feels when they're able to find and resolve an issue, even before a customer has a chance to get upset or reach out to support about the issue. Talk to me about that. Well, I find it pretty exciting to be able to hit it off early. So and being able to tell people that you resolved something, so maybe they come through, you know, and they do report an issue, and you can say, cool, well, we don't need to ask you for any more context. We've got all the details and we can have this fixed tomorrow. It turns an at-risk customer into an absolute raving advocate. So that's a huge win. And then the other thing that was a little bit embarrassing we launched Raygun, but we had these other products and we instrumented them. And that's when we realized this less than 1% of our users would ever actually report a problem. And so you're sitting there thinking your software is actually not bad. And actually, <laughs> it's really, really bad. And that's hurting all of your conversion rates, business performance. You know, these aren't really dev tools, they're actually business tools. All right. If you want to see how this dev tool impacts the entire business, head to raygun.com to learn more and start your 14 day free trial. No credit card required. Join thousands of customer centric software teams who use Raygun every single day to deliver flawless experiences to their customers. Again, raygun.com. Okay, so I would like to switch very quickly uh, topics a little bit because you mentioned something which I was fascinated about. You mentioned about the Knative revision count in the Chingar dev staging <laughs> environment reaching four, five, six. And I'm wondering, why is that important? That's a good question. And, you know, I kind of jinxed it because after as pretty much as soon as I posted that, Someone, this is just our staging environment where we roll out changes every time we commit. As soon as I posted that, someone made a change to our Terraform, which ended up cycling that cluster and reset back to to zero. Yeah, so one of the reasons that that was interesting to me was really about sort of, to some extent, scale. So we create enough resources as you're sort of cranking up to that number, both in terms of Kubernetes services and other things, that if we hadn't done the work to do things like garbage collect, old revisions, and 
you know, all kinds of other things uh, on the K-Native side, you know, it would have fallen over long before that. And really uh, not necessarily K-Native falling over. It's like your Kubernetes cluster would have been like, no, you can't create more services. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's these resource quotas that um, most vendors put on clusters around how many of certain types of resource you can have, like pods and services and, and other things. And at least in contexts like GKE, that's generally something that they control that's proportional to the size of your control plane. And as your cluster gets bigger, they give you a bigger control plane and you can have more of those resources. And so we still are running on a relatively small cluster. But if we were to just be creating all those things and not sort of cleaning up behind it and stuff like that, we would we would have hit one of those limits by now and mm-hmm. had a bad time but like really we we reached that high number really just by continuing to do what we needed to do and not worrying about the infrastructure and it, mm. it you know just reached that point and i was like great that's awesome is this number 456 counting the updates to knative is that what this number is so you updated knative 456 times in the staging environment each service, each Knative service, when you update it. Mm-hmm. So in Kubernetes, resources have a, a generation. Every time you change their spec, generation in the metadata section gets incremented by the API server automatically. And so basically what this number represents is how many times that's been bumped. So how many times have we actually pushed a new image how many times have we, you know, changed the configuration, whatnot, since since the cluster effectively, you know, came up? And right. bear in mind that, like, we're using tooling like Ko, which does reproducible builds. So, like, the image doesn't change unless the code changes. So, that's a fair amount of stuff that you know has been rolling out over time, where there's some meaningful change uh, to those things. And I think there were two that were at 456. There were some that were lower, either because they got introduced later, or just haven't had code changes to them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think the fact that we stopped paying attention to the infrastructure for a while, because it was just working, and you know, managed to crank along to that point, was very exciting because, you know, ultimately, I think that was one of the goals with Knative was to try and take all of those things that you need to worry about normally with Kubernetes to mm-hmm. really build a production ready service with, you know, okay, I've got my deployment, I've got my service, I've got my, you know, L7 layer, whether that's ingress or something like Istio virtual services. I've got my auto scaler. I've got, you know, how am I doing TLS? Am I using, you know, cert manager resources, right? And on and on and on. And even with those things, right, it's hard to do things like request-based scaling, certainly in a performant way, if you, like if you want to scale to zero. And so the fact that like we can write, really it's, it's a tiny amount of YAML for each of the services we stand up. I mean, at one point I was like, it fits in a tweet, right? It's basically API version kind metadata. And then the one bit that is a little tricky to remember, we wanted to align with what a lot of the Kubernetes apps resources look like. So it's spec, template, spec, containers, and then the the pointer to your image. And that's literally all you need to stand up an HTTP service on Knative. So, you know, and, and you get all of those things. You get 
auto scaling. And, you know, if you've configured auto TLS, you'll get a TLS terminated service with auto scaling and request based auto scaling. And it does smart rollouts at default because we know it's HTTP serving. We can do things like default readiness probes. And like if your container's crash looping or your HTTP server's not coming up, we don't roll traffic over to those things. One of the sort of like really nuanced things that is just incredibly hard to get right in Kubernetes is really nailing the the life cycle around readiness probes, draining traffic and accepting oh, yes. traffic. And, you know, in particular, right, like, there's, there's sort of two classes of apps. There's apps that like ignore signals and they, they stick around for this, what's called the termination grace period, which is between the SIG term and the SIG kill, which luckily defaults to like 30 seconds. So it's not sitting around like forever. And then the, the other class of people are the people who, well, I'm, I, there's a third, which they do it properly, but that's like, Super niche. The second big category of people are like, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do signal, signal handling. When I get sig term, I'm just gonna quit, right? And that's mm-hmm. actually not what you want to do, right? You you want to like handle sig term by starting to fail readiness probes, but all your normal requests will sort of be handled properly because it takes time from when you start to fail readiness probes until your pod is marked not ready. That's the like failure threshold on the readiness probes. And then once your pod's marked not ready, right, that has to roll out to all of the network programming, right? So that has to, your pod's endpoint has to be removed from the endpoints on the API server. So the service controller has to see that your pod's not ready, remove it from endpoints. But like, you're not done there, right? Those endpoints then have to be propagated to, in vanilla Kubernetes, all of the nodes, which have to reprogram their IP tables, or if you're in mesh mode, every single pod sidecar now needs to know that like, okay, that pod, um, that endpoint is no longer available, right? So in some cases, and it's some scales of clusters, I don't think that 30 seconds is even necessarily long enough. But the reason I, I bring it up is we did a whole bunch of magic magic in Knative since we know it's an HTTP-based service, to make it so that it's really hard to get that wrong. Because it's it's really hard to get it right in vanilla Kubernetes, but it's actually really, really hard to get that wrong in Knative. So like one of the things we do is we have a, a pre-stop hook where we do something somewhat magical where the pre-stop hook is on one container, but the place to send it is on the other container. So we, we have a a proxy that sits in front of the application container. And when Kubernetes is going to go stop the pod, instead of actually sending any signal to the user container, it sends it to our sidecar first. And our sidecar starts to fail probes and do it properly so that you don't have to, right? So if you're in if you're in the first camp of folks who you know, doesn't really handle the signaling at all and uh, just continues to serve traffic normally, you will still drain properly because our, what we call the queue proxy will actually handle that for you. And if you're in the second camp where you just do what I call a YOLO exit, you're like, I got the SIG term, I'm out. You're still good as well because since we have that pre-stop hook, 
we get the signal first, we make sure traffic has drained. And then by the time you're actually getting that signal, traffic's been routed away from your that instance of your application. And so it's really, really hard, actually, within the context of Knative to, to handle that wrong. And I think that's a really important thing to get right if you're using any sort of auto-scaled application, because when you scale up, right, there's a window where the new pod's coming up. And if it reports ready before it's really ready, like you're in trouble, you're going to serve 500s. And if when you're scaling down, if traffic continues to go to those pods after they've started to shut down, you're going to get 500s, right? So the goal is zero 500s. And we have all kinds of tests in Knative where we're like, no, there should be zero 500s. Uh, the other thing that we do that is really hard is, and the networking layers make this incredibly hard to do, and we work around all kinds of stuff in basically every ingress provider, is ready means ready, right? Everyone at the networking level is like, yeah, it's eventually consistent. It'll get there at some point. But it's like, no, we, if we roll out a new revision, we want to know when we tell the user like, yeah, yeah, you, you got your new code, that we're not lying, right? And so Knative does all of this fun stuff where we actually uh, inject hashes of the network programming into the network configuration in ways that um, our, our elements of the data path will respond with the header that's being injected by the network programming. And then the components we have can actually probe different things to, to understand what version of the network programming has been rolled out. And then once it's been rolled out everywhere, I don't, we can't do this in mesh mode because we can't probe mesh sidecars, but we do this for like probing the pool of envoys if you're running outside of mesh mode. So for instance, traffic serving off cluster, we can probe and make sure that like once we fully rolled things out and we say it's rolled out, you should never get the old version. It, it is at the new version because we've confirmed all the networking programming is there. Listening to you unpack this, I have two things like on the top of my mind that I have to get them out there. The first thing is a Knative Ship It episode with you is long overdue. <laughs> and I think that's that's what I'm picking from this. Like we really have to dive into Knative in a dedicated Ship It episode. That would be great. The second thing which I want to say, I think that is time for your timeline cleanser for this conversation. And because people are listening to this and they don't know what it means, can you describe your timeline cleanser for us, please? Uh, do you mean Charlie? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Who is Charlie? <laughs> He's asleep under my desk here. <laughs> okay, so Charlie, everyone listening, Charlie's a dog. <laughs> Charlie's Matt's dog specifically, <laughs> and he's he's super cute. <laughs> and when after yes, Matt talks too too much technical stuff and chain guard and K native, he brings Charlie <laughs> just to break the timeline. <laughs> so that's amazing. Yeah. See, that's the picture. That's the screenshot we should have taken. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> He's not thrilled that I woke him up. How, how old is Charlie? I'm wondering. Charlie's uh, about a year and a half. So one of our one of our uh, our previous dog passed early in the pandemic. She was she was getting really old and had all kinds of health problems, and and so that that was sad. She was I'm like my shadow that. during mm -hmm. the work from home, and so we. We were like, we're never getting another dog. It was too sad. And the house sort of felt empty. I mean, especially me working from home, right? Like yeah. I, I was working from home when I was at VMware and, 
And then, you know, when I took my break, it was just like, there was, I was never really home alone when I was working from home because she was always there and she'd follow me around the house. Uh, she, although one of, one of her health problems was she was uh, deaf. So she wouldn't always follow me around because she didn't know I'd be wandering around if she was asleep. But so we actually got really lucky with Charlie, who's a great dog. Because we started to, you know, talk to folks with this breed of puppy. We, we love this kind of dog. They're Cavalier King Charles Spaniels. They're fantastic dogs. We started to talk to them not because we, you know, necessarily wanted one right away because, you know, we were still getting over Lily. But, you know, during the pandemic, everyone seemed to get a dog. So there was this really long waiting period. So we weren't telling our daughter that we were talking about this or, or anything. And then one of the folks that my wife had reached out to called her one time when she was in the car and it was on speakerphone. And she was like, well, I had, you know, someone fall through who was going to take a puppy home like this weekend. And, you know, would you be interested in meeting him? And so this is on like a Thursday. Mm-hmm. And so we went out and met Charlie on, uh, I think it was going to be Saturday, but she had a litter, another litter of puppies, <laughs> puppies all over her house. So we ended up meeting him on Sunday. He's quite a bit smaller. And it was fantastic, both because of him, but also because yeah. of sort of walk in, you sit on the floor and you get mobbed by puppies. It's, it's a very uh, therapeutic. <laughs> special feeling, yeah, special feeling. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for sharing that, uh, Matt. Yeah, that, that's. I will make sure to put images, the ones that you share with me, in the screen, in the in the show notes for people to see who Charlie is. And if you want one of Lily, I wouldn't mind including it. I think that would be nice. Oh sure. This episode is brought to you by MongoDB, the makers of MongoDB Atlas, the multi-cloud application data platform. Atlas provides an integrated suite of data services centered around a cloud database designed for scale, speed, and simplicity. You can ditch the columns and the rows once and for all and switch to a database loved by millions for its flexible schema and query API. When you're ready to launch Atlas layers on production grade resilience, performance, and security so you can confidently scale your project from zero to one, Atlas is a truly multi-cloud database. Deploy your data across multiple regions simultaneously on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Yes, you heard that right. Distribute your data across multiple cloud providers at the same time. The next step is to try Atlas free today. They have a free forever tier. Prove yourself and your team that the platform has everything you need. Head to mongodb.com slash changelog again, mongodb.com slash changelog. And by Chronosphere. When it comes to observability, teams need a reliable, scalable, and efficient solution so they can know about issues well before their customers do. They need a solution that helps them move faster than the competition. And companies born in the cloud native era often start with Prometheus for monitoring, which is obviously an amazing piece of software, but they quickly push it to its limits and often outgrow it. They run into issues with siloed data, missing long-term storage, and wasted engineering time firefighting the monitoring system versus delivering their application with confidence. 
They describe the system as a house of cards, where a single developer's seemingly benign change can overload the whole monitoring system, or they say they're flying blind because they pride themselves on making data-driven decisions, but losing visibility means they lose this competitive edge. Ryan Sokol, VP of Engineering at DoorDash, has this to say about Chronosphere, quote, the visibility and control that Chronosphere's platform gives us to manage our observability data and costs are a game changer, especially with our unprecedented growth, end quote. Chronosphere is the observability platform for clouding of teams operating at scale. Learn more and get a demo at chronosphere.io. Again, chronosphere.io. I'm wondering about how ChainGuard, and I'll start with a big one, the big why. Why does ChainGuard do what it does? That's a great question. Why is ChainGuard doing what it does? Well, we're working on doing a lot of things. I think the what, I think in terms of the, the space and focusing on the supply chain space in particular, is rooted in, you know, it's, I think, one of the big problems facing our industry right now. You know, it, the prevalence of attacks is just going up and up and up and up. Mm -hmm. And there's some point solutions for, for pieces of the problem, but it's still really hard to do this sort of holistically end to end from, you know, from source all the way through to production. And, you know, one, I think one of the difficulties there, right, is even if you do that for your own stuff, you know, it's something like 90% of what folks ship to production these days isn't something that they built. It's something that they either got off the shelf in the form of like, you know, system packages from, you know, your, you know, Debian mirror or your, you know, Alpine or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and that's in, in your image, but like in your application itself, that's true as well, because, you know, you are likely consuming either you know, in Go, random, well, hopefully not completely random, right? Certain libraries uh, to do what you want to do, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're rendering PDFs, there's probably some library that you're using to do it. And you, you haven't, you know, rolled your own, you know, way of writing PDFs, right? Yeah. To pick just a completely random example you know, or Java, you know, you're, you're likely using jars off of Maven Central or, you know, one of the ones that gets a lot of attention is NPM, right? Like NPM, it may even be more than 90% because people write these little like, you know, one-liners and you pull in, yeah. you know, enough node modules to fill your disk, right? So, yeah, I mean, just increasingly... It's become all about the package managers for, for really bootstrapping new languages. One of the funny things that I always felt like it was sort of missing from C++, I know there's things like Conan now, but but I really had a, an aha moment the first time I used Maven. And I was like, oh, cool. There's this you know repository of really useful libraries and you know I can you know download things and and use them. But you know, at the same time, right, like how do you establish trust for those things and whatnot? So I think the point there, right, is there's a lot more to securing your supply chain than really just securing your own stuff. So that's one of the reasons I think we're so invested in open source as well, because ultimately we need to make this incredibly easy to use and incredibly accessible to open source developers. And so 
the, so one of, one of the key projects that we are investing in and building around is a, a set of projects under the umbrella, an umbrella called SigStore projects. The code na- so uh, the code names are well, the code name project names are Fullcio, Recore, Cosine. So Cosine is the CLI. It's what I think folks will probably have the most exposure to in terms of you know if they're a developer day to day, like they might invoke cosine to attach what's called an SBOM or to sign things or to attest to things, which is a form of signing a claim. But I think one of the most exciting things for me about what SigStore is doing is not the sort of traditional modes of signing in, in tools like cosine where you generate a public private key pair or you use a KMS system. And then with the, with those keys, you, you know, sign things and then, you know, it's verifiable with, you know, the verification key. You can do those with Cosign, but I think what's really, really exciting to me, and I think ties into that making it accessible to and easy for developers is this thing called keyless signing. So if you sort of rewind time 10 or so years, maybe more now, I'm going to show my age, but you know, before Let's Encrypt existed, right? Getting TLS certificates for your website was hard, it was expensive, and, um, you know, and then Let's Encrypt came along, right? And they, you know, they got themselves registered as a certificate authority with, you know, all the groups that sort of matter in the, the space to become a certificate authority. Then they offered this public good service that would go, you know, it had a challenge process and you could get TLS certificates. And there's fantastic graphs that sort of show where the number of websites with TLS before Let's Encrypt and then it launched and it goes up and up and up. And at this point, right, like when you're viewing a website and it doesn't have the little green lock in your browser or whatever, right, like it's very suspect, right? And yeah. some browsers, like I think that's the standard in Chrome, won't even show websites if they, you know, don't have TLS. It's certainly something you can turn on. I mean, new new top level domains like .dev for sure basically require TLS in order to serve on that, uh, serve yeah. HTTP on them. So uh, the reason I bring it up is we like to make this analogy when we're explaining SigStore since Let's Encrypt is. A fairly well-established thing uh, nowadays um, that many folks use for TLS, where one of the objectives of, of the SigStore community is, and they're working really hard towards um, a GA of this public good infrastructure, is something like that, which instead of being a certificate authority for web traffic, it's a certificate authority for signing. And so it's this really cool process where if you enable this mode of keyless signing, and you use cosine, you say cosine sign my OCI image digest. Mm-hmm. It will send you through what I've been calling an identity challenge. So it pops open your browser and you go through a 3.0, you know, a web single sign-on OAuth flow with, it gives you a couple choices on the public good instance. You can use uh, GitHub or Google, or I think there's uh, support for a Microsoft, a form of Microsoft identity in there as well. And then once this identity challenge is complete, it'll, it'll sign your image and root that into this public good instances 
sort of certificate authority and folks can verify things. And so what, what's happening behind the scenes there, we call it, we call this keyless and it's like serverless. There's still servers and server, serverless. But what happens is it's, it's keyless in the sense that like you don't have to manage or think about keys. The keys are sort of, you know, ephemeral and they exist for as long as you need them to exist and then they're gone. So in keyless signing, what happens is cosign generates a key pair in memory, and then it goes through this identity challenge, and you know there's a few other elements to the challenge process, like proving you actually have the private key to this full CIA certificate authority, and a few things happen, right? You know, one is that challenge process completes, but then you get back a, a certificate that basically says, okay, like I verified that this is the identity that. I provision this certificate for. And so if you if you were to cosign verify, which is the dual to signing, something that's been keyless signed, what, what you'll see is encoded into the certificate, and you can do this the hard way with, with things like OpenSSL and stuff too. What you'll see is something like Matt Moore at ChainGuard, you know, is encoded into the certificate. And so when FullCO is basically taking your key pair and actually rooting it into the certificate chain, it includes the identity that the challenge process worked for. And so since if I'm doing the human version of this and using single sign-on to prove my identity, that gets included into the certificate. I think it's in the subject of the certificate. There's, There's two forms of it where we either use a URI if you're using something like spiffy identity or something like that. But if there's an email-based identity, like, you know, if you're to sign on with Google or, you know, the GitHub identity can produce an email too, then it'll be included into the email section of the certificate. And then you can also start to include more and more information into some of the certificate extensions as well. So, you know, I mentioned the human flow, right? There's also a sort of workload flow. And so this is one of the really cool things about so I've become such a nerd about OIDC, in particular, the prospects that it enables with things like federation and having a form of portable auth. But so many things have started to adopt this as a standard, right? You can produce identity tokens from, you know, most Google identities. So like GKE workload identity produces an OIDC compatible token, but Kubernetes itself has support for um, through what's called, I never remember the order of the, the soup here, but it's, it's service account projected volume tokens, where you can, for the service account that your workload is running as, you can project the token with a particular audience and a particular, the lifespan's configurable. I don't think it can be lower than 10 minutes, but you can adjust it. And so what's cool here is a lot of the major vendors, GKE does this by default, EKS, I think does it by default, or it's, you know, at least one of the standard ways of spinning up EKS clusters. And AKS now has this in preview, where the issuer for your cluster is world visible, which means you can send those tokens to services. And those services can actually verify those tokens, because they can hit your issuer and get the verification keys for those verifying the signature on the OIDC tokens. And then you can do what's called federation, where federation is a process where you take the OIDC token and you basically send it to something like Google or Amazon. They have, both of them have service they call SCS or the security token service, where you can exchange a third-party token for 
a token that's first party. So it's now a Google token or an, or an Amazon token. And then you can do things with them. And that's super, super, super cool, especially since Google and Amazon don't need to know about you know, who you are, right? Anyone with an identity provider that's, you know, does OIDC can potentially integrate with these things and do federation, which is super, super cool. So the workload-based signing basically builds around this. So the public good instance has a set of issuers that are sort of well-established that it can accept tokens from. And then as workloads, you can sign these things. And so GitHub recently launched support for identity tokens. And so as part of GitHub Actions, right, when I'm producing things, I can now do keyless signing just by adding to my workload. I think you need permissions, ID token, write, which allows you to produce these things. And then you just say cosign, sign, image name, and it works like magic. Sorry to jump in, Matt. I mean, it's fascinating what you're telling me. I wish I could listen to you for at least another hour, but I know that we're hitting against your time limit. <laughs> There's a bunch of things which I wanted to ask you or we didn't get to. So this is what I think we should do, and it's a proposal. I think that we need to have Kim on to talk about Enforce because we haven't even, like, crap, opened that subject. And when I talked to Puerco last time in the previous episode... He was saying, like, I did, oh, I haven't even mentioned this thing. That's okay. Matt will come on and we'll talk with Matt yeah. about Enforce. And that hasn't <laughs> happened. And that's okay. It's not a problem. I was very curious to start unpacking with you. How can the CI CD ecosystem help? What are the changes that need to happen there so that they help sure. the supply chain? But I don't think we have time for that. We have time for one more question. And this is something for, I know that our audience really appreciates. And that is the key takeaway. So from all this conversation, I'm just very aware of all the things that we haven't hit because like we could talk for hours and hours and like you have like so yeah. much information in that head of yours. I don't know where it fits, <laughs> but uh, me, me neither. it oh, falls out okay. my ears when uh, I don't have a corpse. <laughs> That's a good one. So when it comes to the key takeaway from our conversation for the listeners that stuck with us all the way to the end, what would you say that would be? That's a great question. I would say I would say signing is the beginning, it's not the end goal. And I think that it would behoove most organizations to start looking at how you start signing things now because it's it's really a foundational thing. Mm -hmm. And if you can get to the point where you have that foundation, you can then start to do really interesting things with that, right? Both, you know, you sign things like provenance to say, like, I produce this. So think signed commits. But it goes so far beyond that once you start to talk about things like attestations and yeah. all the other kinds of useful pieces of metadata you might sign with. And I think, you know, to touch on and tease Enforce a little bit, Enforce is really about sort of the complementary side of signing, right? Which is, I've now signed all my stuff. Why did I do that, right? And it's so you can actually have policy around the types of signatures you want to allow into different contexts and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now that you really signing is sort of like a form of authentication. You're saying, you know, this is my identity since now we have that identity element to this, right? And I am making a some sort of statement about this thing that I have signed, right? So now what identities do you trust in what context to say what things, right? So these are the kinds of things where policy gets involved. And where you can actually start to leverage that metadata that we're trying to make incredibly easy to attach mm -hmm. to actually then make judgment calls about these things. So, yeah. Yeah. 
that's that's a great one. So I think I think what I'm going to do is cancel a few meetings that I had planned for KubeCon. So I have more time to talk to you <laughs> because I can see where this is going. I would love to have you back sometime soon so we can continue this conversation. We have a bit more time. I think there's a lot to unpack here. It's super important. It's going to affect us all. And I think the people that are not paying attention, that's okay. You will have a wake-up call at some point. Uh, but this stuff is really important. I'm pretty sure it is. And I think we need to keep driving this home. It will take a whole town. I know it's a cliche, but that's exactly what it will take. It will take all of us to improve the supply chain of our software. Delaying it will only make it more urgent. And then we'll be like headless chickens running around. That's okay. It works for some. But I would like to get ahead of the game if we can. And I can definitely see where this is going. Matt, thank you very much for joining me. I look forward to meeting you at KubeCon. Please bring all the swag because I'll be there. <laughs> and I'll like get like a bag just for that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you next time. Thank you. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers from all over the world via changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low-latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your beats are awesome, Breakmaster Cylinder. That's it for this week. See you all next week. My last thought for today is your Ship It feedback. If you enjoy the show, rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. You can be the first listener that leaves us feedback on Apple Podcasts. I'm looking forward to it.